would stare at a blank screen and go, okay, how should I start? How important is it as a radio journalist to, to really have no shame? I'm willing to try anything. I'm willing to look stupid. You were kind of like a, a teenager uh, uh, in the back of his car for the first time. I thought that was quite brilliant because you were exceedingly appalling at it. When I talk about fantasizing about your tape, I'm a hunter. I know what I want, and I get it. I'm Robert Smith. I'm a correspondent for NPR's Planet Money podcast. I've been a radio journalist for almost 30 years. And today I'm going to give you a master class on the art of radio packages and tell you the secrets of how to structure them. Hello and welcome to the Masterclass. I'm Louisa Lim and I teach journalism at the University of Melbourne. Each week we have a master of audio journalism talking through one aspect of the craft. This week we're talking news packages with Robert Smith, who is a master of filing short news packages on deadline. Your packages are really well known for their their zing, their creativity. How do you do it? How do you manage to sort of achieve that every time? Well, not every time, but what I do is I do a lot of the work that normally you would do after you collect your tape. I do that work before I collect my tape. Because, you know, when I first started out, I would go and I would interview everyone I possibly could, and I would ask every single question I could think of, and until I was almost close to the deadline, and then I would run back to the studio, and I would just have so many people talking about so many things, and I would stare at a blank screen and go, okay, how should I start? <laughs> and I did that for years and years and years and years. And, and eventually I just thought, like, I should, I should give some thought <laughs> to what I'm going to say before I go out. We've all yeah, been in that terrible. place. <laughs> it's terrible. And, you know, I work now in, in longer form uh, in podcasting, and it gets even worse when you have days' worth of material and days to write, and you just get so lost so what I started to do was, especially when I was on deadline, the moment I got my assignment, I would start to fantasize. I would start to be like, oh, like what would be the best possible way to start this piece? Like what would be the most amazing person to talk to? Uh, what could they say? Uh, how should I start? Uh, what would the structure of the piece look like? And this is in literally the first five minutes after I get an assignment. I start to think, well, what do I know? What don't I know? What has to be there? What doesn't have to be there? And that way, when I go out, I always say, you know, the way I used to do it was I was like a, a gatherer. I would just sort of pull up vegetables and that sort of thing. But now, like, I'm a hunter. I know what I want, and I get it. <laughs> One of the first things that I was told when I uh, began doing packages for the BBC was, you know, if you're stuck, just go with the three-act structure. That's simple. Yes. It always works. I mean, is that one of the structures that you use? It's funny because I wish someone had just told me that early on. When I first started NPR, I remember uh, we were having this meeting where everyone had to present something. And, and so I listened to just a bunch of four-minute long pieces. And I discovered that the ones that I really loved had this sort of three-part structure. No one had told me it. And the pieces that I thought sounded really good had a sort of really distinct break between these three sections. I noticed that uh, Tom Goldman, great sports correspondent for NPR, he never just 
play a, a sports game, right? It'd just be, oh, here's, here's, here's a football game. He would talk about before the game. There would be a section that was like before the game. Here's what's at stake. And then you would hear the bell or the whistle. And the game would start and the second act would really be what happened in the game. Third act was clearly after the game, what did it mean? What did they say? Right? And that seems sort of obvious, but a lot of people don't make those clear breaks. It felt like even in four minutes that you've been to a bunch of places, right? You've lived an entire life in three acts. I mean, it's a journey, isn't it? You want it to have some kind of trajectory, maybe a physical one or an emotional one that you're taking your audience on. Yeah. And I mean, it's in some ways, it's sort of the illusion of a journey because, look, ideally, you know, the dream is that we're going to find a story and we're going to follow it for, for weeks and months and, and, and see a true beginning and a true middle and a true end. And just on deadline, you don't have that luxury. So you want it to feel like it's moving. So sometimes it's just, it's sort of moving the camera, right? <laughs> In cinematic terms, it's like, here's a picture of this and here's a view here and here's a scene there. And it now feels like you're getting movement through an issue. I used to cover a lot of press conferences. I was a New York City reporter who had four hours to cover a press conference. And you'd go and you'd put your microphone and, and the mayor of New York would, would tell you something. And you'd pull a lot of cuts from that and do a piece on what the mayor of New York says and maybe what someone else said. When I realized the three-act structure worked, I started to get there early. And, you know, normally when you go to a press conference, there's a lot of people there who are actually invested in the topic, right? A neighborhood group or an interest group or something. Like, they're, they're just sitting there. So I would start to say, like, oh, maybe I can have a scene before the announcement. These are what the people want. This is, these are the people who have something at stake, you know, in this press conference. And I could have a press conference section. And then afterwards, I could go back to the people who had something at stake. Like, did this satisfy you or um, somebody who didn't like it? This is a very basic, very short kind of news story. But now it wasn't, it didn't just feel like blah, 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 press <laughs> conference. It felt like, oh, something's happening. So that's a way to turn something that's very, that can be a very monotonous sounding story into having a wee, wee, wee bit of action. Not much, but but just enough to make it stand out a little bit on the radio. And I think we have an example of a piece that you filed under pressure. This was uh, the funeral of the singer James Brown. I mean, this backstory, isn't it, that you had to really leave before a lot of activities have actually happened. Can you talk us through how you went about doing that piece? I mean, it's a classic example of a deadline piece, which was uh, James Brown, uh, the great singer, had died, and they were bringing him back, his body, back to the Apollo Theater, which is where he had started out his career. This was such an obvious wonderful radio-type story. But the problem was he was due to arrive at 1 o'clock, I believe, and All Things Considered, which is our afternoon news program, they wanted it at 5 o'clock. So what I did was I really thought out, like, so what is the piece going to sound like and how much time do I have? So I knew I wanted sort of a three-act structure that we just talked about. So an obvious one, which we just sort of mentioned with the press conference, sort of before, during, after. I'm like, I knew that there would be people out in the street waiting to see James Brown, to see his body. So, so that's a clear first scene, right? This, like, what did James Brown mean 
Um, who are these people? Who's there? What's the scene like, right? And then for the second scene, I thought, well, I will go inside. I'll walk through. I'll see the body. I'll talk to people there. Maybe we'll be whispering. I'm like really fantasizing. What, what's it going to sound like? Is it going to be music? Are people going to be whispering? <laughs> like that's nice, right? People are loud outside. Now they're whispering inside. And then afterwards, I thought, well, you know, maybe I'll I'll talk to people about um, how they felt seeing James Brown or what were their final uh, wishes for him or maybe what will they do tonight? Like, what's the song you really want to go home and put on the record player? Like, literally, I have the assignment and I'm already, you may have noticed, sort of making things up in my head. Like, I'm hearing it because that allows me a shortcut, which is to go look for it. But it seemed like everyone in Harlem stopped by just to take a look. People were dancing, selling T-shirts and James Brown bootlegs. Asafi Kendall got up on her boyfriend's shoulders to take in the scene. Pandemonium. It's a whole lot of people out there. Baby, I'm going to be late for school trying to see James Brown. And then the godfather of soul himself showed up. James Brown! James Brown! The crowd went nuts as the casket was carried into the theater and onto the stage. That's right! About an hour later, the first people in line started to come out the back of the theater. Now quiet, reverent, Carney Bragg says he walked by the casket of James Brown and was in awe. He has a blue outfit on, his hair looks beautiful as always, and he looks very good. I'm a funeral director, so I know he looks very good. So he looked like he was going to put on a show. That's right. Well, what was the feeling in there? Out front, there's sort of a party going on. Inside? It's very quiet. No one's saying anything. Bragg says he was reminded of late nights listening to James Brown's Live at the Apollo album and singing along, please, please don't go. Robert Smith, NPR News, New York. Robert, how on earth did you find a funeral director to interview? <laughs> well, well, this is an example of figuring out sort of a plan B, because when I talk about fantasizing about your tape and structuring your tape, I think a lot of people start to think, well, Robert, you don't know what's going to happen, really. And it's like uh, having a, um, a hypothesis in science, right? I think I know what's going to happen. So I'd plan this whole thing out thinking I would walk through, I would see the body. Remember we talked about how I would whisper. <laughs> like I'd planned out this whole scene, but James Brown was late. Um, he was carried He was carried on a horse-drawn carriage and it took forever to get through Harlem. And so I realized I was not going to be able to make it in and see the actual event and still get on the air. So I ran around the theater to the back of the theater, which I had, when I got there, I had sort of scoped out the situation like you want to do. And I simply waited for the very first person to come out the back door. And it turns out to be this uh, funeral director was a friend of the mortician who was putting on the event. <laughs> like he had used his friendship to kind of get a sneak peek. And at this point, because it's a deadline, right, I'm writing it in my head. I knew I needed an end to the piece. And he walked out and everything you heard there, that is pretty much the entire interview. Because at that point, I'm like, I need an end, I need an end, I need an end. He comes out, I ask him a few questions, and I was like, that's it. Like, I gotta go. Remember we talked about you want your, your sections to sound different? So you have the music and everyone's partying out front and in the back, you know, he's a funeral director, he's calm, he's not whispering, but he's, he's calm 
and reflective and the music's a little little sadder at the end. And so as soon as he talked, I'm like, oh, I have the end. And I got on the subway and I started to listen back to the tape and, and started to write it on the subway so that I could make the deadline. Let's talk about other structures then. Apart from the three-act structure, what are the other options? I should make something clear here, which is, especially when you're beginning and someone talks about structures, it can seem like there's some sort of secret code, right? That, oh, if someone like gives me this secret structure, it'll take all the work out of this, right? And the best structure, I should say, is any structure. So when I say structure, it's not a secret treasure map that will solve <laughs> your problems. It is a way to start processing the story early. I preface this because I have something that I call um, advanced feature theory. <laughs> and I feel embarrassed to even say that out loud because it's just a name that I used in my <laughs> own head. No, seriously, it's not a secret. It's just that I did a lot of stories. So I'm in New York City, right? And in New York City, there is weird stuff happening all the time. And I would love to do stories on them. And I found that when I did these stories, there was a particular structure that I used. And that's what I call advanced feature theory. I don't know why advanced. It made me feel better. But um, <laughs> Sounds good. It and that was, good. it's sort of a way to move from outside to inside. So the piece will start out with you as an outsider. And you stumble upon something that seems like the craziest thing ever. And you're like amazed. I, why are they doing this? Why are they doing a giant pillow fight on the streets of New York City. That's so weird. And then you sort of move closer inside that world and people start to explain, oh, like we're doing it for this, for this, like this is what it means, this is why it's fun, here, try this. And you sort of move into their world more and more and more and more and more. And then about two thirds of the way through, you pull back from that world and say, wait a minute, this truly is insane. So in the case of the pillow fight, I'm there before the pillow fight, like, what's going on? This is bizarre. It starts. I get pulled in. People are hitting me. I'm in the middle of it. We're talking about it. And then all of a sudden, I, I leave the pillow fight, and I stop up uh, someone who's passing by, who's not part of it, so that they can just say, this is the stupidest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> and then at the end, you sort of reconcile what it is to be inside with what it is to be outside. And... You have a nice little end. It sort of feels as if you've stumbled upon this world and you've moved through it a little bit. So once again, <laughs> if anyone is like writing this down frantically, <laughs> I made this up because it was a helpful way for me to process a story that can seem out of control, right? You know, it's like something that I could hold on to so that I could like, oh, I, I need to get this. I need to get that. And I need to get that. Same way with the three-act structure. Same way with advanced feature theory. Now that I work in longer format, I have uh, this uh, thing called the story wheel. There's uh, someone who writes comedies uh, named Dan Harmon. He did a show called Community and, a, and an animated show called Rick and Morty. And he published this thing called the story wheel that's sort of like the hero's journey, but made simpler for TV. And it really spoke to me as something that could help me in a story that's longer. Because it involved, basically, if you know the hero's journey, someone, your hero, wants something out of the world and he goes on this sort of journey to get it and encounters all these obstacles and gets what he wants, but he then needs to like take what he's learned back to where he started. It's essentially the hero's journey. And that's what I often use now because I'm doing longer pieces that have main characters and heroes. And so I 
Once again, it's just a security blanket. So I can be like, oh, yeah, you know, I have to get the obstacles. If I'm telling a story about someone who started a company, I need to know how did he begin his journey and who helped him on his journey? Like, who was his Gandalf? And what were the things he had to overcome in order to start the, the business? And, and how did he reconcile that with his original dream? It sounds basic, but in the midst of a story, you can get super, super, super lost. And it helps me to have something that feels sort of true and universal that I can compare my story against. If we're looking for an example, the story that you did at the Ohio State Fair for Planet Money with Kenny Malone about the art of the pitch, I guess, in a way, you might be the hero of that story? State fairs are these places that people bring their animals to be judged, and every state has one, and there's uh, amusement park rides, and you eat terrible food and deep fried food, and everyone comes and has a great time. And then there are people who sell products at these fairs, dumb products, uh, kitchen gadgets, and chamois cloths, and you know, blenders that'll blend anything and and special knives. And (laughs) these are all demonstrated by these people. There's this sort of entertainment going on where they're just like, excuse me, miss, do you need a knife that can cut a tomato, you know, as thin as a piece of paper? And I've always been fascinated by those, those people. And our original plan had been to find one hero, one person just starting out who could take us through one single day of trying to sell a product and, you know, we'd be cheering for him and will he succeed or will he not succeed? And for various reasons, that didn't really work out. So in that case, it became more about, oh, here's a strange world, a world that I personally was sort of obsessed with as a child. How do we learn the secrets of this world? You know, how do we, to use the hero's journey, be like Luke Skywalker and discover the secrets of the force and master the force by the end of it? So that's what it sort of became. Oftentimes, if there's not a hero in your story, it's sometimes the reporter uncovering what's happening and sort of acting as an audience surrogate, <laughs> you know, moving through this strange new world. Nobody wakes up in the morning and thinks, hey, I'm going to go to the state fair to buy a mop. Which is why it is such a great place to see the power of a sales pitch. How you doing, guys? You want to see how it works? Y'all ever heard of a spiralizer or a baguette? Tommy Harris is the size of a professional wrestler. And he's delicately peeling the skin off a tomato with a little metal gadget. Once you get home and you get used to it, you can go right-handed, left-handed, you can even do it underhanded like most politicians nowadays. (laughs) Tommy says the hardest part of the job is just getting people to stop for a moment. Grabbing someone's attention is called the hook. And he says if you want to see how the hook works, just try to walk by the woman who's pitching garden tools one row over also happens to be his fiance. Oh, so she's she's here? Yeah, she's right around the corner. She's pitching. Wait, can we hear her? Can we hear her from here? Only if she starts laughing. <laughs> really? Yeah. She got a big laugh? You'll see. I'm going to hear this. <laughs> this is Heather Keto. <laughs> Heather is leaning out from her booth with this huge grin and her arms stretched out like she wants to shake my hand. Hey guys, come on over here. Y'all want to try it out? Makes your life a lot easier. But then all of a sudden, she's placed into my hand a set of pruning shears called the tiger jaw. And without missing a beat, she holds up a tree branch for Robert to try them out. Go for it. You know you want to. Three clicks. Oh, oh, I am hooked. (laughs) (laughs) This piece really made me laugh, particularly because what happened at the end of it. How did you decide to end it the way that you did? If you notice what we're doing so far, I mean, just to dissect it a little bit which is 
we are trying to take this piece and put it into motion. It's all about the action. And so that doesn't just happen. I think a lot of reporters sort of stand in one place and talk to one person, right? Or maybe record somebody doing something. But through this whole piece, Kenny and I are on the move. Like we go in, we're describing all the different booths. We're literally walking around talking about this. We, we capture one guy and he's like, you got to go around the corner to the other booth. We're walking by that. She puts it in her hands. We're trying out things. We're constantly doing something in the piece, which is kind of radio magic, right? It, it, you can picture it. You just feel like you're on this, this roller coaster. And so I'd kind of in my head thought like, oh, you know, I would love to try to do this myself. And I'd also sort of secretly thought like, I'm probably pretty good at this. Like, <laughs> you know, I talk for a living. I essentially sell the news. I'm willing to try anything. I'm willing to look stupid, you know, because if it doesn't work, you don't have to put it in the piece, right? I want to drive things. I want to taste things. I want to, you know, kick the wheels. I want to, you know, walk in places I'm not supposed to walk. And so it became pretty clear that, like, by the end of the day, I was like, oh, I'm going to try this. I'm going to do it. It's the end of Tommy's shift, and the crowds are starting to thin out. And I think this is my moment. Have I learned the secret of the sales pitch? And so Robert smoothly positions himself in front of the cutting board, picks up the peeler, and starts to yell at people. Do you like food? Do you eat food? Do you prepare food? I can do food for you. Look at this thing. I got no hook. I got no clothes. I cannot even remember what kind of peeler Tommy called this. So that's why we have this wonderful spiral cutting... Spiralizer. You did manage to get everyone's attention, Robert, but maybe not in a good way. Yeah, Tommy just laughed at me. How, how, how was I? Was it just, was it too much? Was it... You were kind of like a, a teenager uh, uh, in the back of his car for the first time. Just a little, like, uh, uh, excited. <laughs> Poor Robert. That's totally fair. Hey, it is a lot harder than it looks. And on the bright side, you still have radio. Yeah, not just any radio, but the last radio program you will ever need. And today only... Two reporters for the price of one. Kenny Malone. And Robert Smith. NPR News, Columbus, Ohio. I thought that was quite brilliant because um, you were exceedingly appalling at it. But it was a perfect example of showing not telling, right? The art of the pitch, it's just not that easy. But what I was going to ask... It's not that easy. It's not that easy. But what I wanted to ask for you was, I mean, how important is it as a radio journalist to, to really have no shame, to do things that would you know, be awkward, like interviewing people at funerals, you know, to put yourself in those positions? I think it's pretty essential. It takes, it's hard, right? So I do have to say, like, one of the things I do now is I try and think up the silliest questions I possibly can. So we just did a series uh, where we launched a satellite on a rocket and uh, followed the whole process. And so I just included some of the dumbest questions imaginable. Like when we see the rocket, my first question is, oh, can I touch it? And they're like, no, you can't touch the rocket. Like, you, can't, you can't touch the rocket. Like, this is, like, dangerous. This is serious business. They're so taken aback, and it's such a delightful moment that uh, it ended up getting in there. I generally think of it this way. If you do something stupid, if you ask a stupid question, and you don't get a good answer, then don't use it. But if you come up with the right stupid question and it makes the person look smart or you learn something or it's a funny exchange, then you use it. 
I do have a spot of yours that I wanted to play. It's not really about structure. It's about concept. It's okay. a, your rejected spot on unemployment figures. Uh, <laughs> oh, us, no. Yes, go on. Tell us why you decided to do it this way. I have to say, one of the things that I do as a news reporter is I just don't want to be bored. Like, I want to... I want to try new ways of doing things. I want to push the envelope. And so I guess it's good that occasionally I would do things that people are like, no, we're not going to put that. We're not going to put that on the air. That's terrible. So uh, I just wanted to do something on the unemployment figures and uh, sort of a city by city, which which uh, cities had high unemployment, which cities had low unemployment. And what a boring thing to do. Right. But it occurred to me that, oh, I could sing it. And that would be fun. The monthly employment figures tell us the cities with the highest unemployment rates. No jobs in Reno, Chico, Fresno, Carson City, Pueblo, Centro, Modesto, Atlantic City, Stockton, Dalton, Lakeland, Bernardino, Medford, Bedford, Rockford, Sacramento, Tampa, Yuma, Yuba, Coeur d'Alene, Flint, Bend, Sparks, employment pain. Now I know what you're thinking. Enough with the bad news. Where should I move to get a job? There are plenty of places in the U.S. with unemployment rates below 7%. Look to the Upper Plains and to college towns. Lots of work in Lincoln, Logan, Lawrence, Rapid City, Austin, Abilene, Oshkosh, Iowa City, Grand Forks, Bismarck, Fargo, Minneapolis, Sioux Falls, Midland, Portsmouth, Manhattan, Kansas, Lubbock, Ann Arbor, College Station, Washington, Homa, Billings, Madison, having fun. Robert Smith, NPR News, New York. (laughs) I love that, though. Why would they not play that? (laughs) Literally, I was told that people are very sad when they're unemployed and they don't want to hear a happy song <laughs> sung about their their painful situation. And I was like, of course they do. <laughs> of course they do. But um, it's fine. It's, it's, it's a badge of honor to have made a spot that uh, even NPR won't run. Well, I think you did it beautifully. Let's sum up. Can you Give me your two top takeaways when it comes to the art of radio packages and structuring them. What are your two top tips? My first number one tip is start writing in your head the moment you get the assignment. Figure out a structure. What do you want to hear first? Then who will you hear from second and third and fourth? Don't leave it till the end. Constantly be writing. That's the first thing I would recommend. And the second thing I would say is, really start to fantasize about what is the best possible tape you can get, the best thing that can happen. And this is where it's good to have a colleague and someone you work with or an editor to just like think about like who is the best person I could get? What would be the best opening scene? What would be the most amazing question I could ask right now? Like what's the best ending? You know, is it me picking up the spiralizer and failing? Maybe. Like just start to brainstorm this so that when you're out in the field and you see the thing you fantasized about, you'll feel like you're magic. You'll be like, there it is. That's the person I, I thought would be the perfect person, and they're standing right there. And your work is done for you. Well, other than the writing, which is terrible. <laughs> but uh, other than that, this is the secret. That is brilliant. And I believe you've got a task for our listeners. I think that I want the listeners to practice this fantasizing thing. Practice 
thinking about what would be a perfect way to start a piece. And so I was thinking that what you could do is, I don't know if there are still newspapers where you are, there are barely any here, but you could do this with a newspaper or you could do this online and just scroll down and just pick a story. Pick a story written in a newspaper style, which is normally an inverted pyramid. It has a very complicated intro. And read that story and fantasize about what would be the best possible way that you could imagine in your head a radio piece would start. Who would the person be? Where would the scene take place? And what would be the amazing thing that that person would see? So, for instance, I was just looking at the New York Times website, and there was a story about the Republicans in the U.S. Congress are going to undo some rules that President Obama had put into place about for-profit colleges cracking down on them or something. It was a pretty dull intro. And so I was thinking as soon as I read that, I was like, oh, maybe it opens in a diner. And there's a waitress who works in the diner, and we sort of meet her, and we picture this sort of scene. And she sits down, and she says, well, you know, actually, like, she was in college, you know, and she was in this for-profit college, and she got in over her head. She never got this degree, and she feels like they ripped her off. And she's saying, like, these for-profit universities need to all be shut down. So that's just like a fun scene, right? I can picture this person who had these dreams, and they were dashed by these bad guys. And are they really bad? The piece could explore that. But that just came to mind, right? My assignment is pick a piece in the newspaper and write out that scene. Who's the perfect person? Where's the perfect place? What's the best question to ask? And what is the piece of of tape, the piece of audio that would make the beginning of this piece the greatest piece ever? Thank you so much, Robert. You're welcome. Masterclass is produced and edited by Buffy Gorilla and Ruby Schwartz. It's recorded in the Hallwood Recording Studio by Gavin Neighbor. The original concept is by Anders Furs. Our theme tune is by Susie Wilkins. And it's all brought to you by the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. Thanks for listening. <laughs>